millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Bonjour and welcome to <laughs> Breaking Damn Bad Books, a podcast analyzing trashy bestsellers from a little, uh, a literary perspective. Today we're looking at chapters two, three, and four of The Da Vinci Code, and I tried something just then and I don't think it stuck, but whatever. So yeah, where we left off, guys, The Da Vinci Code, what a hoot. Jacques Sunier is dead and it appears that he arranged his body in such a way as to create clues that only one man can decipher, and that person is Robert Langdon, who's waking up at the Ritz Hotel in Paris, because the DCPJ, they want him to help out on the investigation, and he's got a really deep voice. That's all you need to know so far. Oh, and then also, the guy that shot the curator, Jacques Sunier, is a man with albinism, and I will refer to him as such. In the text, he's referred to as an albino. That's a quote. I'll probably have to quote that throughout, so I am sorry if that's offensive. I'm just quoting the text here. So we start chapter two, and it says, One mile away, the hulking albino named Silas limped through the front gate. Okay, so now he's also got a limp. He's a gigantic albino, and he's got a limp. And he's wearing this silice belt around his thigh, which cuts into his flesh but it reminds him that pain is good and so his soul sings with satisfaction of service to the Lord. What a crock of bullshit that is. And then, okay, his red eyes scanned the lobby. Like, okay, red eyes. His red eyes scanned the lobby of this building that he's going into. And so he's climbing the stairs quietly because he doesn't want to wake anyone up. And it says his bedroom door was open. Locks were forbidden here. And so he goes into his room. It says the room was Spartan. Hardwood floors, a pine dresser, a canvas mat in the corner that served as his bed. Yeah, well, why would you need a lock on your door for all of that crap? There's nothing there to steal. It's no wonder you're not locking your doors. And so then there's a line about how this is a sanctuary for him. And after many years, he's finally been able to repay his debt. And then he hurries to the dresser and he finds the cell phone hidden in his bottom drawer and places a call. Yeah, like as if you've got a cell phone. You're not allowed any modern indulgence. You're sleeping on a mat. You're wearing this chain around your leg that cuts into your skin. But okay, you're allowed a cell phone. Just hide it in the bottom drawer. No one will ever find it. So a male voice answers the call and says, yes. And Silas says, teacher, I have returned. And so the other guy says, speak. Like, okay. No, hi, how are you going? What's up? How's the jet lag treating you? 
How's Paris? Did you stop and get a baguette this morning? None of that. Just spook. I'd say, hey, teacher, fuck off. Give me some pleasantries. You got to prime the pump, you know? I think it's rude. And so he says, all four are gone. The three seneschaux and the grandmaster himself. And then this teacher, no, thank you. He just says, okay, well, I assume you have the information then. And he goes, yeah, all four concurred independently. And the guy goes, oh, well, that's great. He goes, I'd feared the Brotherhood's reputation for secrecy might prevail. And I'm like, yeah, still no thank you. And then this teacher, this rude, blunt teacher, he says, so my pupil, tell me what I must know. And so Silas just tells him everything. And he says, teacher, all four confirmed the existence of the Clef de Vute, the legendary keystone. And so the teacher goes, (gasps) he has a quick intake of breath over the phone. (gasps) And he says, the keystone, just as we suspected. And so then, of course, Dan Brown's got to fill us in. Heaven forbid there be a little bit of mystery about this keystone. Dan Brown says, according to law, the Brotherhood had created a map of stone, a Clef de Vute, or a keystone. Okay, so it's a a map on some stone. So it's a literal keystone. Talk about a not very creative name. And the keystone, an engraved tablet, (laughs) reveals the final resting place of the Brotherhood's greatest secret. Information so powerful that its protection was the reason for the Brotherhood's very existence. Okay, so he doesn't tell us that straight away. Dan's learning to withhold information. Love that. And Silas, he says, hey, guess what? The keystone, it's here in Paris. And the teacher, he goes, Paris, it's almost too easy. And like, yeah, it is. They lied to you, bud. And so apparently all four of the victims told Silas the same story. We know it's a lie because Jacques Sounier gave us that insight. But they all said that the keystone was ingeniously hidden at a precise location inside one of Paris's ancient churches, the Église de Saint-Sulpice. And then the teacher goes, oh, in a house of a lord, how they mock us. How dare they? And so then the teacher says, you have done a great service to God. We have waited centuries for this. You must retrieve the stone for me immediately. Tonight, you understand the stakes. Not a please, not a thank you, not an acknowledgement that he's just killed people. How they mock the Lord for hiding a keystone tablet in a church. And yet it's all very well and good for you to shoot four people. That's a different kettle of fish. And so Silas, he says, oh, whoa, 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 slow your roll, teacher, my friend. He says, but the church, it is a fortress, especially at night. How will I enter? Okay, it's, it's harder to break into the church at night than day, apparently. He just broke into the Louvre. That was a piece of piss, but this church is going to do him in. Oh, it's impossible. It's impossible. And so then the teacher explains what has to be done. We don't get to hear what that is. Silas hangs up the phone and his skin tingled with anticipation. And he's like, all right, one hour, one hour to go, let's do it. But before then, I need to take this hour to carry out the necessary penance before entering a house of God. I must purge my soul of today's sins. Oh, okay, so he's got to seek forgiveness for killing those four people. And apparently that's going to happen in an hour. He's just going to say the Hail Mary for an hour and he'll be absolved. So then he gets naked. Woohoo! Hello, get naked. And he examines the belt around his thigh and he tells us all true followers of the way wore this device, a leather strap studded with sharp metal barbs that cut into the flesh as a perpetual reminder of Christ's suffering. Okay, while I was reading that, I was automatically thinking like BDSM community, like sex fetish, 
and then um, he brought the flesh of Christ into it and the suffering of Christ. And then I sort of, you know, lost that image. But for a second there, I was like, maybe this hulking albino is just a bit of a kink monster. So because he's just killed people and he's got to feel pain, he makes the belt tighter. And so the barbs dig deeper into his flesh. And then exhaling slowly, he savored the cleansing ritual of his pain. And he's thinking to himself, pain is good. Yeah, I think he's BDSM adjacent at least. He's into it. I think he's getting pleasure out of this pain. Oh, and so then he reaches for a heavy knotted rope, which is coiled neatly on the floor beside him. And he says, the discipline, corporal mortification. And so he does a quick prayer. <laughs> it says, eager for the purifying effects of his own agony, Silas said a quick prayer, just a quick one. Just the first half of the Our Father. No need for the second verse, just, <laughs> just a quick one. The abridged version of the Our Father. And then he starts whipping himself over the shoulder. Until he bleeds, until he bleeds, and he loves it. He is totally into the BDSM community. Like, I'm calling it. And that was the end of the chapter. So then we go to chapter three. And remember, Robert Langdon, the sexy symbologist, he just got picked up by the DCPJ. And he's joining the investigation. Even though, let me tell you, it's going to take another couple of chapters before we even get to the dead body. Oh, this book, it's written like a bad, lonely planet. Every time Robert Langdon spots something out of the car window of the Parisian landscape, he's like, got to explain the history of the museum, the history of this monument. You'll see as we go along, but it's very exhausting. So we start chapter three with him saying, the crisp April air whipped through the open window of the Citroen ZX as it skimmed south past the opera house and crossed Place Vendôme. So we're getting a time, we're getting a place, we're getting a vehicle. Everything we ever wanted to know. And so then he says, his quick shower and a shave had left him looking reasonably presentable, but had done little to ease his anxiety. Okay, uh, he's had the time for a quick shower and a shave? I thought we were in a rush. Splash your face with some water, spray some DO on your pits and get going, someone's dead. And like, okay, if you're gonna have a shower, have a quick shower. But did you need to shave as well? Is that necessary? Have a bit of a five o'clock shadow, Robert. We're we're, we're solving a crime here. We're decoding a Da Vinci code and you're stopping to have a shave. And he says the frightening image of the curator's body remained locked in his mind. The curator, the curator. Every time Jacques Sunier comes up, we have to hear that he's a curator. And then it continues. Langdon could not help but feel a deep sense of loss at the curator's death. He has a name. Despite his reputation for being reclusive, his recognition for dedication to the arts made him an easy man to revere. Okay, word salad. His recognition for dedication to the arts. Just say his dedication to the arts. Do we need to know that he had recognition for it? He's only revered because of the recognition that he has, not because of the dedication itself. And I feel like Dan Brown, he just loves anything that's famous. Throughout this whole chapter, he's like, oh, this is famous. The famous floor of the Louvre, the famous color of the marble in the Louvre. It's like, okay, not everything can be famous. And if it is, who cares? It's like he equates it being famous to having value. So he says how Langdon and Sunier were meant to meet up and he was disappointed when the curator had not shown. (laughs) And then he says again, the image of the curator's body flashed in his mind. Okay, all right. One, two, 
three, four, at least four times in two paragraphs, he said the word curator. Okay, and then the DCPJ agent, he tries to make some chit chat. This poor bastard was waiting down in the lobby for Langdon, and then he had to go up and get him himself, and then he had to wait while Langdon had a shit shower and a shave, and now he's got to make small talk with the bastard, and so he says, Le Capitaine was pleased to discover that you were still in Paris tonight. Okay, I love that he's just talking in full English, except for Le Capitaine. He's bilingual, but he doesn't know how to translate just that one title. And Langdon says, I assume that the American University of Paris told you where I was staying. And then he goes, nah, (coughs) nah, Interpol did. And Langdon thinks, oh, Interpol, of course. He had forgotten that the seemingly innocuous request of all European hotels to see a passport at check-in was more than a quaint formality. It was the law. On any given night, all across Europe, Interpol officials could pinpoint exactly who was sleeping where. Finding Langdon at the Ritz had probably taken all of five seconds. As, (laughs) okay, fuck me dead. All right, did we really need like four long sentences on Interpol and passports during hotel check-in? I'm not quite sure that we did. And so then he sees out the window, the profile of the Eiffel Tower. And seeing the Eiffel Tower makes him think of Vittoria, who was a character from Angels and Demons. And he recalls their playful promise that every six months they would meet at a different romantic spot on the globe. And he thinks, oh, the Eiffel Tower would have made our list. And then it says, sadly, he last kissed Vittoria in a noisy airport in Rome more than a year ago. And then the agent looking at him says, did you mount her? (laughs) Okay. And then Langdon goes, oh, and he looks up and he, he's certain that he had misunderstood. And he says, I beg your pardon? Like, okay, first of all, he doesn't read minds. It's not Edward Cullen up in this bish. He doesn't know that you're thinking about your ex-girlfriend who you thought you'd meet at the Eiffel Tower. And of course, he's not saying, did you mount her in reference to this girlfriend that he has no knowledge of because he can't read your mind. And Langdon's like, oh, excuse me, please don't talk about Victoria like that. And then this poor DCPJ agent has to point at the Eiffel Tower and say, her, have you mounted her? (laughs) And Langdon rolls his eyes and he says, no, I haven't climbed the tower. Like he's correcting the agent's English, which is just really pricky. Like, okay, he said mounted instead of climbed, like sue him. And so then the agent says, she is the symbol of France. I think she is perfect. And so then we get the longest paragraph in the world, just giving us a rundown on the Eiffel Tower. Who needs a travel guide when you could just read the Vinci Code? Okay, so, so then Langdon sighs and it says, symbologists often remarked that France, often, often remarked that France, a country renowned for machismo, womanizing and diminutive insecure leaders like Napoleon and Pepin the Short could not have chosen a more apt national emblem than a thousand foot phallus. Okay, they always say that. Symbologists always say that verbatim. I don't know if France is a country renowned for all of those things. Like renowned, renowned for womanizing and short leaders. Like, okay, maybe a couple. A couple does not make a trend. And also, I don't think the Eiffel Tower looks like a big giant dick in the sky. A thousand foot phallus. Have, have you ever seen a phallus, Dan Brown? Like, what does your dick look like, Dan, if you think the Eiffel Tower looks like a phallus? Eiffel Tower dick Dan? I mean, sort of exposing yourself here through this writing, Dan. Okay, and so then they cross the intersection at Rue de Rivoli. 
And then the Citron car doesn't slow down. And then they go, <laughs> they, they speed past the Rue Castiglione. All right, now they're at the northern entrance of the Tuileries Garden. And then you're like, okay, great. No, no, Dan's got to explain the history of the garden. He says it's Paris's own version of Central Park, which is a weird comparison to make. You know, other cities have parks. Not everything's a spin-off of Central Park. And then he tells us that Tuileries was actually a literal reference to something not very romantic. The park had once been an enormous polluted excavation pit from which Parisian contractors mined clay to manufacture the city's famous red roofing tiles. Okay, great. You're just driving past it, so I don't know why we need the full fucking brief. Oh, so then, oh, he tells us, Langdon had always considered the gardens to be sacred ground. These were the gardens in which Claude Monet had experimented with form and colour, birthing the Impressionist movement. Tonight, however, this place held a strange aura of foreboding. Okay, get used to that as well. Also in this chapter, there's a lot of reference to it being nighttime and empty. All these public places where there would normally be hustle and bustle, it's empty and it's dark because a murder's taken place. Okay, now they're leaving the gardens and you can see a giant stone archway called the Arc du Carousel. And oh, oh, he can't just leave it there. He's got to explain in a giant fucking paragraph what that is. Okay, so despite the orgiastic rituals once held at the Arc du Carousel, Artificionados revered this place for another reason entirely. Well, actually, I'd kind of like to hear more about the orgies that were held there, but okay, we're skipping over that. From the Esplanade at the end of the Tuileries, four of the finest art museums in the world could be seen, one at each point of the compass. Out the right-hand window across the Seine, Langdon could see the Musée d'Orsay. Okay. Glancing left, he could make out the top of the ultra-modern Pompidou Centre, which housed the Museum of Modern Art. Okay. To the west, oh, there's an ancient obelisk of Ramses, which marks the Musée de Jeux de Point. Okay, so now we're a map. We started off being a Lonely Planet guide, but now we're a fucking map. What has this got to do with anything, Dan? Tell us more about your Eiffel Tower, Dick. That was at least more interesting. Oh, and then, but no, straight ahead to the east, through the archway, you could see the monolithic Renaissance palace that had become the most famous art museum in the world, the Musée de Louvre. You know, you could just say the Louvre. We were, or- we were already there in this book. The prologue was set in the Louvre, so we don't need another introduction to the fucking Louvre. I don't need to know the street it's on. I don't need to know the color of the tiles. I can Google it. Just say it's at the fucking Louvre. Okay, no, no, all right. We're gonna get a description, okay. Strap yourselves in. Langdon felt a familiar tinge of wonder as his eyes made a futile attempt to absorb the entire mass of the edifice. Across a staggeringly expansive plaza, the imposing facade of the Louvre rose like a citadel against the Paris sky. Shaped like an enormous horseshoe, the Louvre was the longest building in Europe, stretching farther than three Eiffel Towers laid end to end. Not even the million square feet of open plaza between the museum wings could challenge the majesty of the facade's breadth. Langdon had once walked the Louvre's entire perimeter, an astonishing three mile journey. Okay, I love how he's like slipping in a little brag at the end there. Hey, check him out. He's walked the length of the Louvre. Like, oh, congrats. You didn't run a fucking marathon, but congrats. You walked the astonishing three-mile journey. Fuck me, death. 
And then, oh my God, this Robert Langdon, he's such a pompous ass. He says, despite the estimated five days it would take a visitor to properly appreciate the 65,300 pieces of art in this building, most tourists chose an abbreviated experience Langdon referred to as Louvre Light, a full sprint through the museum to see the three most famous objects, the Mona Lisa, Venus de Milo and Winged Victory. Okay, the Louvre Light, fuck off, Robert. You know what? Sometimes tourists don't have five days to devote to one museum and they want to see the hot spots, okay? Like, sue them. You condescending little pretentious little. Oh, Louvre Light, hey. You're not walking the whole three mile journey to see every little piece of artwork? No, I'm not. I'm sorry. Just flew in on the red eye, got through customs this morning. I'm gonna go to the Louvre and just check out the good shit. Like, I'll give it a few hours. I'll give it a few fucking hours and then I'm going to go have lunch. I'm going to have a nap and then I'm going to move on to the next location. Oh, most tourists don't spend the full five days in the Louvre. Well, we're not all made of money, Robert. We don't all have lots of holiday leaves stocked up so we can spend five whole fucking days at the Louvre. You piece of shit. Then he says, Art Butchwald, who apparently is someone, had once boasted he'd seen all three masterpieces in five minutes and 56 seconds. Okay, great for Art. Art Butchwald, well done. Don't know why I'm hearing about this in this book. Like they wouldn't even leave that factoid in a little blog post. A tourist blog post wouldn't even point that out. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And so then the driver, okay, he was an agent, but now he's a driver of the car. That's his sole purpose. Okay. So he pulls out a handheld walkie talkie and I'm like, okay, most walkie talkies are handheld, right? Because that's why you can talkie while you're walkie. And he says, Monsieur Langdon is arrivé. 
luminous and so then something goes back being like because it's a crackling and then the agent stows the device and then the agent says you will meet the capitan at the main entrance okay so now he's he's even dropped the l he's like i'm gonna anglicize the l and just say the but i'm gonna keep a capitan instead of saying captain (sighs) or it's a typo who knows okay so then okay the driver ignored the sign saying no cars on the plaza. And so he just drives up on the curve straight into the Louvre. And then we see La Pyramide. And you guessed it, we get a full rundown on the pyramid. A full fucking rundown, okay. And he says, the new entrance to the Paris Louvre had become almost as famous as the museum itself. And I was reading this and I was thinking, okay, the new entrance, how new is this entrance? And it was done in 1988. And this book came out in 2003. Like, I'm sorry, if it's 15 years old, it's not new. You don't see parents introducing their kids saying, this is my newborn, my 15-year-old kid. That doesn't happen. The controversial neo-modern glass pyramid designed by Chinese-born American architect I.M. Pei still evokes scorn from traditionalists who felt it destroyed the dignity of the Renaissance courtyard. Okay, I didn't need to know who designed the pyramid. And then we get a whole art critic analysis of the pyramid. This person described this as this. People think it's shit. People like it. (sighs) Progressive admirers hailed Pei's 71 foot tall transparent pyramid as a dazzling synergy of ancient structure and modern method, a symbolic link between the old and the new, helping usher the Louvre into the next millennium. Okay, yeah, 12 years early, okay? It ushered the Louvre into the next millennium 12 years before that millennium came about. And then the agent slash driver, he says, do you like our pyramid? I'm like, okay, has a murder taken place or not? Are we going to circle back to the murder of the curator Jacques Saunier? No, we're just going to talk about the pyramid at the front. <sighs> and so Langdon feels like it's a trap. He's like, you know, if I say I like it, then I'm a tasteless American. If I say I hate it, then it's an insult to the French. And so then he just says, Mitterrand, who is the ex-French president, he says, Mitterrand was a bold man. And that's all he says, because apparently Mitterrand commissioned the pyramid and he was said to have suffered from a pharaoh complex because he was single-handedly responsible for filling Paris with Egyptian obelisks, art and artifacts. Apparently, François Mitterrand had an affinity for Egyptian culture that was so all-consuming that the French still referred to him as the Sphinx. I fucking doubt it. How do you know it was all-consuming? What are your sources, Robert? He's just saying shit. He is just talking so much shit and I can't trust that it's the truth. And so then Langdon says, what's the captain's name, by the way? And the driver says, the driver slash the agent, he's either one or the other. He says, Bezu Fash. We call him Le Toro. And Langdon says, you call your captain the bull? Like, okay, Duolingo. And he says, wow, your French is better than you admit, Monsieur Langdon. And Langdon, he thinks, my French stinks but my Zodiac iconography is pretty good. Taurus was always the bull. Astrology was a symbolic constant all over the world. Like, okay, yeah, he's like praising himself for knowing the Zodiac. Everyone knows the fucking Zodiac. Yeah, and Scorpio is depicted by the scorpion. Who would have thought? Ah, do I have a Zodiac iconography degree? No, I don't. I just read my horoscope. So the car finally gets up to the entrance between the fountains at the pyramid. And he says, this is the entrance, go on in. And Langdon says, you're not coming. And he says, nah, my captain will meet you in there. And so then Langdon, 
heaves a sigh and climbs out and he thinks it's your circus. Like, oh, oh, I have to get out of the car and go into the Louvre all on my own. Oh. And now we get the talk of the dreamlike quality of the evening. 20 minutes ago, he had been asleep in his room. Now he's standing in front of a transparent pyramid built by the Sphinx, waiting for a policeman they called the bull. He's like, this is crazy. (laughs) This is nuts. Yeah, someone died, Robert. Get your head out of your ass. And he's like, wow, everything's dark. The foyer to the Louvre is, is dimly lit and deserted. Yeah, it's the middle of the night, Robert. And then out of the darkness comes the bull, the Toro. And Dan describes the man as stocky and dark, almost Neanderthal, dressed in a dark double-breasted suit that strained to cover his wide shoulders. Like, okay, a, a Neanderthal? It's kind of an unkind description. And so he comes up to him and he says, I am Bezufash, captain of the Central Directorate Judicial Police. Ah, oh, the DCPJ. And Dan tells us his tone was fitting, a guttural rumble, like a gathering storm. Captain, captain of the Central Directorate Judicial Police. I don't even know how to do that. A guttural rumble, like a gathering storm. I am Bezufash. Captain of the Central Directorate Judicial Police. No, I've lost it. And then similarly baritone Robert Langdon, he says, Robert Langdon, I saw the photo. Your agent said Jacques Saunier himself did this. And then Fash says, Mr. Langdon, what you see in this photo is only the beginning of what Saunier did. I think I'm going to stop with the voices. Anyway, that's the end of that chapter. We go to chapter four. Uh, no, No point for a chapter break here, by the way, it's just to build suspense. We pick up seconds later, and then Dan Brown's telling us, Captain Bezufash carried himself like an angry ox with his wide shoulders thrown back and his chin tucked hard into his chest. Okay, I thought he was a bull, now he's an ox, and an ox is just a castrated bull, so I guess he's walking like he's castrated? So he's walking ahead like a castrated bull and Langdon follows him down the famous marble staircase into the sunken atrium beneath the glass pyramid. See, famous, it's famous. And I tell you what, it's just a sunken lobby. But the way he's describing it, he says, descending below ground level into the sunken atrium, Langdon fought a rising trepidation. Oh, it's so spooky. There's weird lighting. It's all dark and they're all alone. They're going deep into the base. It's just a lobby that's a little bit below ground. Like, calm down. So he's looking up at the pyramid. Because now they're underneath the pyramid. And whenever he looks at something, some sort of French person has to quiz him on his opinion. And so Fash says, do you approve? Nodding up at the pyramid. Like, do you care? Jacques Sunier is dead. And you're asking if he approves of the pyramid. That's been around for 15 years. And they're talking like it just got built yesterday. And Langdon's just like, oh God, I'm sick of this. And he goes, yeah, it's great. He says, your pyramid is magnificent. And so then Fash goes, oh, actually, it's a scar on the face of Paris. Like, okay, if you think so, why just set him up with the trap question, Fash? Also, is it normal for Parisians to have such strong opinions about everything? And then Langdon thinks, wow, I wonder if Fash had any idea that this pyramid at President Mitterrand's explicit demand, had been constructed of exactly 666 panes of glass, a bizarre request that had always been a hot topic among conspiracy buffs who claimed 666 was the number of Satan. Okay, that's completely false. 
According to IMPI who designed it and the Louvre themselves, they said, we've got 603 rhombus tiles and 70 triangles. That's 673. I don't know what you're counting, Dan Brown, but you're just fucking lying. You're making up shit and you're just putting it in your book like it's a fact. And remember, he said at the start of the book, everything in this book is true. All references to artwork, architecture is true. 100% true. And you're a fucking liar. And so then they drop further into the subterranean foyer. The yawning space slowly emerged from the shadows. We're 57 feet beneath ground level. Like, okay, calm down. You've been underground before. It's, it's not that crazy. And he says the Louvre's newly constructed 70,000 square foot lobby spread out like an endless grotto. Newly constructed. It's 15 years old. Like, I'm sorry, it's 15 years old. And then we hear about the color of the marble. Oh, usually the subterranean hall is filled with sunlight and tourists. Tonight, however, the lobby was barren and dark, giving the entire space a cold and crypt-like atmosphere. We get it. It's the middle of the night. It's empty. It's night. It's dark. We fucking get it. And so Langdon says, Where's the museum's regular security staff? And Fashi says, in quarantine. So the security of the Louvre do exist, but apparently they're being round up and questioned. Rightly so, considering. And then the captain starts asking Langdon how well he knows Jacques Sunier, the curator. And Langdon's like, you know what? We've never met. We were meant to meet tonight after my lecture, but he never showed up. Blah, blah, blah. We all know that. And then they walk past the Louvre's lesser-known pyramid, La Pyramide Inverse, which is a huge inverted skylight that hung from the ceiling like a stalactite in an adjoining section of the entresol. Like, okay, yep, yeah, mm-hmm. We've got to walk past something and we've got to note it and learn the history of it and then we, and only then can we move on. And this one is actually foreshadowing to the end of the book, like spoiler alert, but still. And then we go into the Denon wing of the Louvre And Dan Brown tells us the Denon wing was the most famous of the Louvre's three main sections. Like, oh, okay, it's famous, so it has value. I'm sure it's included in the Louvre light itinerary. And then Langdon saying how the curator's secretary contacted him. She had said that the curator had heard that he would be lecturing in Paris and so that the curator wanted to discuss something while he was there. Curator, curator, curator. And Langdon's like, yeah, I don't even know what the meeting was about. I didn't ask because I was just so happy to meet him. I I really don't know why he wanted to talk to me, but I'm such an admirer of his work, blah, blah, blah. And then Dan Brown tells us that Langdon has spent much of the last year writing the draft for a book that deals with Sunier's primary area of expertise. So his manuscript is about the iconography of goddess worship, the concept of female sanctity and the art and symbols associated with it. And then oh, we've got to hear all about Sunier's life work. <sighs> he was considered the premier goddess iconographer on earth. Okay. Is that really a category of people that exist out there? Like who's the second most famous goddess iconographer on earth? I don't know, Ariana Grande? Like oh, what, what game are we playing here? The world of academia, it's a mystery to me. So not only did Sonier have a personal passion for relics relating to fertility, goddess cults, Wicca, and the sacred feminine, during his 20-year tenure as curator, he had helped the Louvre amass the largest collection of goddess art on earth. Stuff from the old Greek shrine in Delphi, anks, rattles used in ancient Egypt to dispel evil spirits, 
an astonishing ray of statues depicting Horus being nursed by the goddess Isis. What I'm hearing is that he ravaged other countries and took all of their priceless artworks to be placed in Paris, which, I mean, ethically is a bit questionable. Also, there's something a little bit iffy about a man that obsessed with fertility goddess cults. Like, I don't know, I'm getting weird vibes from that. And Langdon tells us that he hasn't shown anyone his manuscript, which is 300 pages long, tentatively titled Symbols of the Lost Sacred Feminine, because it proposed some very unconventional interpretations of established religious iconography, which would certainly be controversial. Word salad. And then we find out that Langdon doesn't like elevators. He's afraid of confined spaces because Fush, he's like, all right, well, let's take the elevator upstairs. And Langdon's like, oh, should we not walk the three miles or whatever it is? And Fush is like, uh, nah, there's a dead body upstairs. Come on, let's go. Let's get to stepping. And he's like, okay. And so then he goes into the elevator and he's like, oh, this is shit. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. You can do this. And he tells us, that as a boy, he'd fallen down an abandoned well shaft and almost died treading water in the narrow space for hours before being rescued. Since then, he'd suffered a haunting phobia of enclosed spaces. Elevators, subways, squash courts. Wow, even squash courts. What a hard life he leads. So then in the elevator to distract himself, I guess, he's just eyeballing Fash and he's looking at his tie clip, which is a silver crucifix with 13 embedded pieces of black onyx. And I'm like, are you counting the pieces of onyx on the crucifix tie clip? Is it not, I don't know, a little bit tacky to have a crucifix be a tie clip? Shouldn't crucifixes just stand on their own as pendants? I don't know if they should serve a purpose. Is that not disrespectful? I don't know. Anyway, so then Langdon tells us, oh, it's a crux gemata, which is a cross bearing 13 gems. It's a Christian ideogram for Christ and his 12 apostles. Can we get it? You like ideograms? You like images and symbols and shit, we know. Ugh, can, he, can the guy just not wear a tie clip in peace? And then Fash says, it's a crux gemata that you're eyeballing. And Langdon's like, oh, okay, all right. And so then he gets out of the elevator and he's like all relieved to be stepping into the grand gallery. But no, uh, he's got to tell us that it's not like he expected. He stops short and Fash says, I gather, Mr. Langdon, you have never seen the Louvre. After hours, like, oh my God, we're very clear on the time of day. And that's not all. Langdon's there trying to get his bearings. And he says, usually impeccably eliminated, the Louvre galleries were startlingly dark tonight. And there's, there's, it's got red lighting because red muted lighting is better to preserve the artworks. And he tells us the whole story about it. It doesn't bear repeating. But he says, tonight the museum possessed an almost oppressive quality. Long shadows encroached everywhere. And the usually soaring vaulted ceilings appeared as a low black void. Like, okay, it's nighttime at the Louvre. And so then they're walking down the wing. And then he says he could taste the familiar tang of museum air. (laughs) All right. Sure you can. Uh, The familiar tang of, ah, yes, yes. I, I recognize that taste well. It's museum air, delicious. And Langdon sees up on the roof, there's all these security cameras. And Langdon goes, any of those cameras real? And Fash says, of course not. And Langdon says he wasn't surprised. Video surveillance in museums this size was cost prohibitive and ineffective. So they're all fake 
fake cameras. Okay. I'm sure the Louvre loved when this book came out, just like advertising to everyone that they're fake cameras. The security team at the Louvre were probably thinking, shut the fuck up. That's a secret. It's a deterrent. And you're just telling everyone they're fake. And call me crazy. Call me crazy. But I feel like the Louvre could spring for some real cameras. You're the Louvre. You're like the most visited tourist destination in the world. I'm pretty sure with all that entry money, you could spring for a couple of cameras. Everybody has cameras in their homes. They say, I've got a pet camera to keep an eye on my dog throughout the day. Like, are you telling me the Louvre can't afford a pet cube camera? Maybe just like an Amazon Echo Dot? So then they get to Sunye's office and the captain says, this is the office of the curator. Ah, was Jacques a curator? I, I, I never knew. So there's all this hustle and bustle with DCPJ agents in the office. And so Fashi says scram so they can have some alone time. So everyone scrams. But then I guess he told them to scram further away. And then they're going to go alone into the Louvre's most popular section, La Grande Galerie, a seemingly endless corridor that housed the Louvre's most valuable Italian masterpieces. And so Langdon already knows that this is where Sunier's body lay because the Grand Gallery's farmer's parquet floor had been unmistakable in the Polaroid. Oh, it's got a famous floor. And then he gets to the gate, the famous gate that fell down in the prologue. And Fash says, oh, this is containment security. Yeah, because they don't have security cameras. All they have are medieval gates that come down as soon as someone steals a painting. And so then he says, after you, Mr. Langdon, and Langdon's like, what the fuck you on about, mate? I can't walk through gates. I'm not Mr. Elastic. I can't just bend my body around. And then Fash like points at the floor of the grate and the barricade was raised about two feet, providing an awkward clearance underneath. And Langdon's like, what the fuck? So Langdon's now expected to get onto the ground and slide his little schlumpy body through the gate underneath the barricade. Like, can we not just lift the barricade? Like, surely you've lifted it a little bit. What harm would there be to just lift it up completely? If the killer's still in there or a painting thief is still in there, he'll just slide right under as well. Just how you're going in. I don't, under- I don't understand this unnecessary roadblock. And Fash, to sort of, I don't know, explain it, he says, oh, this area is still off limits to Louvre security. Okay, so what, do Louvre security not have the capability to lie down and shimmy under a barricade just like Langdon's about to do? Louvre security wouldn't know how to figure out how to limbo under a grate. Uh, And so then Langdon's like, yeah, you gotta be kidding me. He says the barricade looked like a guillotine waiting to crush intruders. Well, a guillotine doesn't crush, it cuts, it severs. I think you're mixing up your metaphors there, Robert. And Langdon's just like a stunned mullet. He's like, huh? And so Fash, he's like, oh, I'll do it first. So he gets down on his knees and slithered his bulky frame underneath the grate. (laughs) Slithered, okay. So he's placing his palms flat on the polished parquet floor and he's lying on his stomach and pulling himself forward. So he's slithering and sliding and then he hits his head (laughs) on the iron grate. (laughs) And then he's fumbling and he's like, oh. And then as he stood up, he begins to suspect that it was going to be a very long night. And that's the end of the chapter. Like, can you believe We are not even close to cracking the Da Vinci Code yet because we're just getting the full on Lonely Planet guide to the Louvre and to the surrounding sites of Paris. We're getting directions. And I just know we can't trust this Dan Brown one iota. 
If he's lying about the tiles in the pyramid, who knows what else he's lying about? Maybe there are security cameras at the Louvre. I will never know. So let me know your thoughts, theories, questions, concerns. As a reminder, you can go to patreon.com slash breaking down bad books and sign up for the bonus episodes, which were released every Friday. We're covering Maze Runner at the moment. And I'll see you guys next week. Bye. Send your burning thoughts, frustrations, and grievances on this latest chapter of this shitty book to breakingdownpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at podbreakingdown and Instagram at breakingdownbadbooks. You can visit www.breakingdownbadbooks.com for all the listen links, contact information, merch, and more. To support the show on Patreon and gain access to exclusive ad-free bonus episodes, visit patreon.com slash breakingdownbadbooks. Ratings and reviews on your preferred podcast platform are also a fun, free way to support the show. Breaking Down Bad Books is hosted by me, Nathan Brown, who you can follow on Instagram and Twitter at NathanBrown90. Thanks for listening and happy reading. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.